Good evening. How are y'all tonight? You good? Thank you so much. I grew up on that song, Wonderful Words of Life. That was a very frequently sung in the church where I grew up. And so it's just ingrained in me. I love that. Join me as we begin by going and turning to the book of Hebrews. I've got some kind of allergy thing that kicked in in the last few days. In fact, I couldn't teach Sunday school today for coughing so much. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me. I don't know if it's a time of day thing or what, but it's really working on me right now. Um, and, and we're going to begin as we do on Sunday evenings with an opportunity coming off of this morning's message just to ask questions kind of talk about uh, the things we covered this morning, maybe something that you need clarified or something that helped you or something that you would like further explanation of from this morning's message in the book of Hebrews. Who wants to kick that off for us this evening? It's always good if somebody just breaks the ice, then other folks kind of feel okay to to jump in. Oh, y'all are quiet. All right, Matt. Yes. Well, I, I think there's a context for that, that that the writer to the Hebrews is touching on specifically. The people that he's writing to are suffering. And their suffering is causing them to be tempted in many different ways, in ways that those who aren't suffering might not be tempted. And the link between tempted and suffering in Hebrews 2 seems to carry the idea that the suffering itself is that which is provoking the temptation. And so Jesus' life, wherein the things that he suffered from the time of Uh, his childhood all the way through the temptation and all the way through the suffering of the cross and death, that that uniquely prepared him to understand us so that when we're going through particular things, and I think contextually in Hebrews here, in this part of the book, he's talking about their temptation in suffering, that he is relating to that. Um, so tying it back to Matthew, I think the dependence upon the Spirit is that which sustained Jesus. Uh, I don't think that's his point here. I think his point here is you can depend on Jesus himself. Um, and, of course, he dispatches to us the Spirit. He pours upon us the Spirit. He sends to us the Spirit. But I think in this passage, the point is that you, because of Jesus' suffering, have access to him personally and his unique perspective on suffering 
Therefore, the word that is used there, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So Jesus has a unique sympathetic, which that word will be picked up over in chapters 4 and 5. He has a unique sympathetic understanding of what we're going through because he suffered in the same way. And so I think the unique part of Hebrews 2 is that Jesus' suffering and temptation went together and uniquely enabled him to aid us when our suffering leads to temptation in our lives. And so I don't think the idea of the dependence on the Spirit is necessarily given in this passage. I think this passage says dependence on Jesus himself. He comes to the aid. No. I don't think so, because when you read through Hebrews, you've got us running boldly to the throne of grace. And obviously this is that idea that we have passed through the the veil into the presence of God Himself. So we're receiving grace and mercy to help us in our time of need from God Himself also. So think what you could come up with biblically from the New Testament is you have a Trinitarian work for you all the time where the Spirit is interceding for you where Christ is interceding for you. You get that in Romans 8. And where God, who holds no charge against you because of the work of Christ, if God is for us, who could be against us? So you've got this Trinitarian idea that the Godhead in all three persons is working for you all the time. But the unique part of the Godhead, Christ, unique in His sufferings, has an understanding of what you're going through that is unique to him. And therefore, he's very sympathetic to it. In other words, Jesus can say to the Father, I've been there and done that in a way that the Spirit can't and in a way God the Father has not, but that Jesus Christ has. He has born flesh, and he knows exactly what that feels like. I love that humanity passages, those specifically in the book of Hebrews. And, and it helps me understand Jesus did not get a free pass because he was the Son of God on anything that he faced. Whatever it is that we face in the temptation process and the grueling nature of that, whatever that's like, Jesus didn't get a free pass on that. He experienced what the pulls and those stressors are in suffering and in temptation. So I don't think it would be quibble at all. I think it's the Godhead all working for us. You want to follow it up? Okay, good. Good question. Good question. Okay, other questions? Maybe out of what Matt said or something from this morning? Yes, Daniel. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the word father is actually supplied in the New American Standard. And what version you're using, the word source is supplied. It actually just reads in the Greek, the, the one who sanctifies and the ones who are sanctified are from one. And it doesn't say one what. And so those two things have been uh, wrestled about by theologians and by translators 
Was it talking about their source in God? Or was it talking about their source in humanity? Their one source in humanity. In other words, was it the commonness of human experience or was it the commonness of uh, God as Father? And people have wrestled with which of those it is. I think it's both. I think it's why it's left as one. The idea later that there is, uh, he's not ashamed to call them brothers because in him they have the same dad. Okay? And he's also not ashamed, uh, excuse me, he's also not unable to understand their human plight because of the humanity that he has. And so theologians have kind of wanted to say, you've got to pick one or the other. It's either focusing on God, Father, or source being humanity. I think it's both because both are explained in the following verses. Jesus and his brethren have one Father. They through the new birth. He through God sending him through the virgin birth. Um, or both of them have their source in the human experience. Both of them are in the verse, uh, in the following verses up to verse 18. So I think depending on what translation you've got, it'll say either say one or one father or one source. And I think it's both. And I think that's why one should be left just alone. Good question, Daniel. But it, it, it highlights the human experience of Jesus is real. And if you remember in church history, um, the church through the ages have wrestled with the humanity of Jesus. With some folks leaning too far to the human side, some folks leaning so far to the divine side that they said Jesus was only apparently human. The Docetics, I think, and the Gnostics leaned toward that, that he only appeared to be human, but because matter is evil, he couldn't really have been human or that would have made him evil. Those things that the early church really wrestled through, and I think that Hebrews gives the best picture of the exalted nature that he is God and the humbled nature that he really was 100% man and that both of those are completely true and held in tension throughout the book of Hebrews. And what it's leading to, and I said when I started the sermon this morning, the, the interesting thing that this transitional passage is leading to Jesus as high priest. He is uniquely qualified as high priest because he can fully 100% represent God to us and he can fully 100% represent us to God. So he is the unique one who is the only real and true high priest. And that's where the book of Hebrews is going next, is to the high priestly ministry. So both are true, the humanity and the divinity. Good question. Any follow-up on it? Okay, good. Other questions or thoughts you want to... Float out there or ask about. Love this time. Always like kind of kind of working through some of those things we've covered. Okay, well, let's back up into the text and look at a couple of things that I think are important for us to consider. When we went through this morning, Robin, you can bring up that second point if you don't mind. Um, just bring those two points under the second point up. There we go, the expectation and the exclusivity. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting, the verses that are quoted in around verses 11 and 12 and 13 
he reflects back on two Old Testament passages. Now, those of you who have those center cross-references that you love to look at, what are those two Old Testament references? What's the first one where it says, I will proclaim your name among the congregation? What is that from? Psalm 22. What do we know about Psalm 22? It's a messianic psalm. It is probably one of the most potent, clear, stated messianic psalms. Now, what's interesting about that psalm is what's going on in the book of Hebrews. These people are being uh, abused for their beliefs. They're going through a really difficult time. They're being challenged about what kind of Messiah they have. And remember this morning we talked about the expectations of Jews and Greeks. Now, hold on to that Psalm 22 thought for a second. What was the other passage from? Isaiah 8. Now, Isaiah 8 is a famous passage. It's called the Scandalon passage. It's the passage where in the Old Testament that Jesus would be a stone that makes men stumble. And in the New Testament, that idea of stumbling is given with the word scandalon. It's the word that we have brought over for scandal or scandalous. It's something shocking that's unbelievable and appears to be unbelievably bad. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for just a moment because I want to do something we didn't get time in this morning and then I'll kind of draw these ideas together from Psalm 22, Isaiah 8, and 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I said 2, I think. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Come with me in chapter 1 and work all the way down to... Verse 23. For we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block. This is taking from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the language of Isaiah 8 that the kind of Savior that was actually going to come would be scandalous. It would be shocking. It would be surprising. It would be someone that when he came on the scene would be rejected because he wouldn't be apparently what we were looking for. Now remember what I shared with you this morning. I had some conversations afterwards today that... The problem that Satan had worked into the hearts of people and does today is the idea that we need to be delivered more from what is outside of us than where? Than inside of us. That we need a Savior for our situation rather than for our salvation. And so in the Old Testament, there were pictures along the way. Psalm 22 Isaiah 8, both give a picture of something scandalous. In Isaiah 8, 
there is the idea that what's coming is going to be so shocking that it will trip people up. That's what the word scandal means in Greek. It means a stone that makes you trip. It's something that you're walking along and it catches your foot and it trips up your progress. Jesus was going to trip up the progress of many because they were looking for a Savior for what was outside of them when He was coming to save them from what was inside of them, their own personal sin. So when we get to 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the word... To the Jews, this is scandalous. Now, for us, when we just translated a stumbling block, it's not as powerful as the idea of something scandalous. As soon as you hear the word scandalous, you're ready to look in the National Enquirer for what the next scandal that's coming down the road is, for the next news station to pop up what that scandal is. New scandal here or there. Well, Jesus was the scandal. He was the supreme scandal because it was offensive that He was coming to save us from what we are, not to save us from what they are. That was shocking. And so, when... uh, Let me me make one more point about verse 22. Um, Verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, "...and to Gentiles foolishness." And as I shared with our Wednesday evening Bible study, that's such a nice and soft word, foolishness. Uh, We'll look at our kids and say, what kind of foolishness are y'all up to? That is not what this word means. It does mean foolishness, but not that playful. It's the word we get moron from. Do you like being called a moron? No. When somebody says, you're just a moron, they are not saying you're just a little foolish. They're saying you're just stupid. Well, That's the word that the Greeks used to describe Jesus and the fact that he would die on a cross. That's just moronic. It's just stupid. How can a weak man who perishes on a Roman cross do anything for anybody? Thousands of people did that. If not, tens of thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands died in that way. And so that's just moronic. Now, bringing all that together, When we're in the book of Hebrews and these people are suffering and are going through this and they're tempted in their faith to to walk away from Christ because of this scandal of what kind of Savior He is, because of of this moronic story of someone dying on the cross for people's sins, they're being tempted. What the writer of the Hebrews does is in chapter 2, he simply says, Hey guys, we were told this. A long time ago. We were told in Isaiah that what was coming would likely trip us up. We were told that. Don't be surprised. We were told, now let's go to Psalm 22 and look at this picture. And we'll just, we'll just briefly browse through it. This song was the representative of Christ. It was the picture in the Old Testament of the cross. It is detailed. In fact, it is used many times in the New Testament as a prophecy or a group of prophecies that are fulfilled. In fact, it's some of the last things Jesus says are the opening verses. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my 
groaning. You come down and you see in verse 6, I'm a worm, not a man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. This is the Messiah. He goes on and he says, verse 7, All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lib. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. You remember the things they hurled at Jesus on the cross? Let Him save Himself. He trusts in God. You see the humanity of Jesus in verse 9. Yet thou art He who didst bring me forth from the womb. Thou didst make me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon thee I was cast from birth. Thou hast been my God from my mother's womb. Look in verse 12. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They've opened wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. Thou dost lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. What was the writer of the Hebrews doing when he quotes from this psalm? He was doing what those Jewish teachers did when they wanted to make a greater point. They started by just calling out a section of a psalm or a section of Scripture that the Jewish people would have grown up with. And they would have read Psalm 22 about like you and I would read the 23rd Psalm. And by memory they would know it because it was a messianic psalm. So he's calling them back and going... You guys doubting this humanity of the suffering Jesus? Our hope in the Messianic Psalm 22 is the very hope that this Jesus has brought us. So what he's doing is he's showing them as a quote, he quotes in verse 22 of Psalm 22, I will tell of thy name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise thee. This is the Messiah calling the people he saves his brothers. The point that the writer to the Hebrews was making this morning. But he's making that point not only for that solidarity that Daniel talked about, but for the identity of what was this, what was this Savior going to be like. He's pierced. He's rejected. He's scorned. And the picture of the crucifixion is actually laid out perfectly in Psalm 22. So back to Hebrews 2 for just a couple of things. And our time will wind down. This morning, as we walked through and we talked about the expectation of Jews and Greeks, that expectation had tainted their situation. Let me give you an example. I was thinking about this afternoon um, how many of y'all know Junior Hill, the preacher? Y'all know Junior Hill? Come on. Okay, we have a hand. Okay, we have two. Okay, there's just a few. No, Junior Hill is one of the neatest and most encouraging evangelists. He's aged now. He doesn't get to preach very much. When he preaches, he's really pretty funny, and he's also very engaging. I enjoy him a lot. I've heard him several times. He's, it's like always when there's a good pastor's conference, he's going to be one of the speakers. And he was telling a story one time that was so funny. Um, he was telling about 
his leg started hurting him really, really bad. And his leg got to the place where it was hurting him so bad that he could barely walk. And so he tells the story about going to the doctor. And he gets to the doctor and he says, Doctor, I got this pain comes all the way down my leg, almost to my foot. It's like this shooting pain. It's just unbelievable what is going on with that leg. And, and the doctor said, hmm. He said, what I'm going to do, we're going to take you in and we're going to make some x-rays of your back. He said, no, 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 I didn't come here to talk about my back. I'm telling you, I got this pain in my leg. It comes down the side and it shoots all the way down here almost to my foot. I didn't say anything about my back. He said, well, we're going to take some x-rays of your back. And Junior just really animated. He said, you're not listening to me. The pain is in my leg. And the doctor said, yes, but the problem is in your back. And it doesn't matter what we do with your leg. If we don't fix your back, your pain's not going away. And that's what is going on with our Savior. Our pain is all around us. Our pain is all over us. And the danger is, is we will try to treat where the pain is rather than its source. The source of all human suffering is sin. What brought death is sin. And until sin is conquered globally, universally by Jesus defeating the devil, and locally, personally, by our expressed faith in Jesus Christ, the pain can never go away. In fact, for those who do not trust Christ, the pain gets worse because they never treated its source. They end up in hell and they cannot escape the pain forever and ever. But those of us who have the source of our pain fixed... Well, that's different. And so the expectation of Jews and Greeks and the exclusivity had to do with their pride and their situation. Because their leg hurt, they only wanted the leg looked at because what hurt was the Roman domination. What hurt was the societal corruption. What hurt was the the inequities of life. All of those seemed to be the things that needed to be fixed. But the problem really lie in their heart. And so our pain often guides our expectation. But Jesus is smarter than our pain. He knows that leg pain can be sourced right here in the small of your back where a nerve is pinched. And that that's where the problem is. All of the pains of life have been caused because Adam and Eve in their hearts, they sinned. And all of us fell into that sin with them there and participate with them in that sin every day of our lives. And the only remedy to that is to understand our expectations for what a Savior can't be based on our experience. They have to be based on what the Scripture diagnoses us. And so in the book of Hebrews, here's what's happening. Look with me in verse 14 of chapter 2. And we'll bring this to a close. These folks were misunderstanding their fundamental need. They need to be saved. They needed the sin dealt with and the one who had the power of death broken. And so in verse 14, he says, This is the fitting Savior. 
Since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same, that through death, that's the scandal. The Jewish Messiah was going to kill, not be killed. The Greek saviors were killers and conquerors. They were not ones who were defeated. And so their expectations warped their understanding. The devil came in and used that warpness to say, you need to be saved from what is around you, not what is in you. But what does Jesus do? That through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly He does not give help to angels. Listen carefully. As glorious as angels are, Jesus did not die for the angels and did not give aid for them. He gave aid to what are called the descendants of Abraham here. Therefore, verse 17, he has to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And here's the key word, and this key word is going to launch us in the next couple of weeks, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Here is the heart of your need. Here's the heart of my need. I need someone to make propitiation for my sin. And there is only one who is uniquely qualified as a glorious God, divine, and as a sinless man, completely human. He is the only one. Now listen carefully. When the word fitting is used in verse 10, it's leading to the next use of the word fitting in chapter 7. So we'll go there and we'll close with it. Because this is, I'm going to tie something together that we're going into in the next couple of weeks I'm really excited about. Listen, come with me to chapter 7, verse 26. It says, For it was fitting... Same word, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. What is he doing now? Well, he went in the first part of the book of Hebrews and said, we're talking about God. In the second part, in chapter 2, he's talking about a humbled man. And now what he's showing is that that God-man was the perfect, fitting substitute, sacrifice, and high priest. He was qualified by the two things. His godness and his humanness. What does it say? It was fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Who does not need daily like those other high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once What does it say? Once for all. This is so good. How many times? Encompassing all. This is the glorious picture of the work of salvation spanning across where it says He tasted death for everyone, spanning across socioeconomic, spanning across racial, 
spanning across any kind of barrier into every kind of people and every kind of people group, every kind of sin and every kind of sinner, this Jesus offered Himself. And so here's the picture of all of it coming together. Jesus exalted above the heavens God. Jesus humbled below the angels man. And those two things uniquely qualified Him in His glorious sinlessness to just get it done through one act, the cross. My prayer for you is twofold. First, if you don't have that relationship with God through the cross, look at verse 25 of chapter 7. Hence also He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. That is your only way to God. Period. There's no access to God except through Jesus Christ. And my prayer for you first and foremost is that you have accessed God through Jesus Christ and this glorious gospel that we preach that Jesus, God, human flesh, lived perfectly, died as our substitute, raised from the dead, exalted to the right hand of the Father, interceding for the saints at this hour, and that you would access God through Him by repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And second, my prayer for you is that if you're saved, you would just rejoice in this once for all. Let's pray. Father, as we draw to a close tonight, by the grace of Jesus our Savior, speak to us. First words of warning that this is the only access and we must come in repentance. And second, words of joy that those who have 